New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. New Horizon, doubt ya. <laughs> Maybe, close, yeah. Uh, I'm working on it. Hey, uh, just before we jump into the text the Lord has for us tonight, again, I want to say Donna and I have had such a great time here already. We had a delightful gentleman named Paul pick us up at the airport and drive us up here. We met Paul, who's running operations here and have been hosted so well by a, another Paul here, and Pauline helped us get here tonight. So we're learning that apparently all of you are named Paul, and I just want you to know, Northern Ireland, Paul's, we're so glad we're with you and here to be learning, but excited about what the Lord has for us in his word. Uh, so let me pray if I can, and we'll jump in. Father, thanks for a few minutes around your word. I pray now help us as we study it, Lord, that we could see you. Uh, as we said before, Lord, in your word, that the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, the God who illuminated the heavens, illuminates hearts so we can see your glory in the face of Jesus. And that's what we need tonight. Before we need strategy on how to deal with our anxiety, before we need methods to deal with our addictions, we need to know the King, we need to know the Savior, we need a hero. And so tonight, God, I just ask for your grace to quicken our minds, focus us if we're distracted, open our hearts to be receptive, and Father, change us as a result of looking at Jesus. And I just want to ask you, family, if you're up for it, to take a minute and you pray and ask him, say, Lord, please teach me tonight. And then if you would, please pray for me, that the Lord would use me and I'd be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, through a unique set of circumstances, I've been able to spend quality time with Navy SEALs. They are the elite special forces of the U.S. military. And they're a fascinating group to hang out with because when they're training in the States, they do some amazing things that lead to some incredible stories. I remember talking with one when we were both in training. I was in seminary. He was in a school. And we both had finals coming up. And he said, what's yours about? And I said, mine is on Greek participles. I said, what's yours about? And he says, mine's on how to stalk a guy in the jungle. I'm like, okay, so kind of a pass-fail class. Got it, all right? Uh, I remember going to a wedding with one after he had gotten back from lock-picking school, and he showed up at the wedding cut up and bleeding, and I'm like, what's going on? He was like, well, at the final, they beat you up, handcuff you, and throw you in a trunk, and then you have to get out. And uh, he said, so I made it. I'm a little late to the wedding, but he made it. And then he told us not only did he get out of the handcuffs and out of the trunk just to have a go at his uh, instructors, he also got out of all his clothes just to escape from everything and make his way down the street. Fascinating guys. I remember riding with one on the way to a wedding, and he was showing me, after getting back from drive fast school, how to take a vehicle up to 90 miles an hour and then make a 90-degree turn using the handbrake. And I was like, great, I'll use that next time I'm late for church or something like that. <laughs> but I remember one time, uh, I was at a buddy's house, and he had just gotten back from a school called Halo School. Uh, Halo's an acronym. Uh, it means high altitude, low opening. It's a parachuting school. 
And it's not just for the SEALs, it's for all branches of the military, but it's intense. Uh, they have maybe half of a day of training in a classroom, and they're throwing these guys out of airplanes. And so he's showing us video of the event. All the instructors had cameras on their helmets, and at the beginning of the video, they all looked ridiculous. They had them in these baby blue outfits, and uh, when they got them to the plane, I mean, even if you've never uh, jumped out of an airplane, you kind of know you're supposed to go horizontal. First guy out of the plane just starts running. And we're all yelling at the screen, there's no traction, man, lean, right? But uh, the others got that part right, but they'd open their mouth, which makes your cheeks flap. They look silly. But with each successive jump, they were gaining some new skill. Uh, how to tack, uh, turn their body with exact motions. How to tack at over 100 miles an hour. And with each jump, as we watched this video, they looked less and less funny and more and more impressive. And then I remember as the video came to the close, I noticed in the room we weren't laughing anymore. As we watched them prepare for their final jump on the video, they weren't wearing the baby blues anymore. They were wearing dark colors, jungle greens and blacks. They had 60 pounds of gear strapped to their body, including weapons. When it came time to load onto the plane, they didn't look nervous. And when the signal was given, they leapt out without hesitation. And as they descended through the night sky, I remember it struck me why we weren't laughing anymore because suddenly we remembered what this whole video was about. These guys weren't some buddies having fun taking a parachuting class. These were warriors preparing to insert behind enemy lines. High altitude is so the enemy can't hear the plane. Low opening is so you spend minimal amount of time in the air as an open target. And the reason they're leaping into the night is to rescue those who've been taken captive and to wreak havoc upon those who oppress men. And I remember as I watched that video, the thought occurred to my mind, now that is Christmas. I don't know what you think about when you think of Christmas. I don't know if people ask that here. What does Christmas mean to you? Some people may say it means family, or others may say it means presence or Jesus, but smaller. I don't know what you say, but next time someone asks you what does Christmas mean to you, can I give you a one-word answer? You can say destruction. Yeah, the reason for the season is destruction. And you'd be biblical in saying that. And you go, Ben, where are you getting this from? Well, from the text that was just read to us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. God wants to destroy something. The reason Jesus arrived was because God wanted something destroyed. Now, I know we hear that. Some of us go, wait, 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 what? No, Ben, like Jesus came to save. He came to bring peace. He came to heal. What are you talking about? But it makes sense if you think about it. To save us assumes that we were held captive. To bring peace assumes there was a prior state where there was no peace. And to heal means there's a sickness in us that must be cut out. And our liberation required destruction. And if we're really going to be a people who are on board with what our God is doing in the world, we need to understand that our God wants something destroyed. So for tonight, that brings up a couple questions. Number one, is what does he want to destroy? And number two is how does he do it? And number three is how do we participate in his destructive work? What did he come to destroy? The passage says it. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It's interesting. You see this played out in movies that were kind of thinly veiled spiritual allegories over the last couple of years. Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings. They all sort of depict a world at warfare. C.S. Lewis said it. 
He wrote that one of the things that surprised him most when he read the New Testament was that it talked so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. Christianity agrees the universe is at war. What did he come to destroy? The works of the devil. Now, I know some of us may hear that and go, the devil? Really? Horns, red jumpsuit, tail? Isn't that kind of an arcane notion? But if you dismiss that, then you have to come up with some other intellectually satisfying reason why something as beautiful as humanity will do the horrible things we do to each other. How do you explain 300,000 dead in Somalia? Because warlords use hunger as a weapon. You say, well, they lack education in parts of Africa. Ben, when Oprah's done down there, it'll all be fine. <laughs> well, then how do you explain Nazi Germany? Millions killed by one of the most intellectually educated nations of its day. You say, well, we've evolved since then. Well, how do you explain over 100 million killed by their own governments in the 20th century? How do you explain our own hearts? How many of us forget a standard of a holy God? We have our own standards, some things we swore we would not do, and yet a few days later we end up doing it. And we look at ourselves and say, what's wrong with me? There are things I hope to leave in my past that are in my present. There's addictions that I thought would be fun to try, and now they've got hold of me. We look at our own lives and say, I violate my own standards. How much more the standards of a holy God? And we see the selfishness in our own story. We see the ugliness in our streets. We see the brokenness in the internet and what we'll do with it. We have this magnificent thing we've created. Humanity is so gifted. We can look at a rock and some streams and some dirt and take all this together and, and make an internet to touch the world, but then fill it with critiques and violence and abusive sexuality. There's something wrong with us that transcends race and culture and time, and the Bible says it's orchestrated. And it says the man behind it, the Bible calls the devil, means accuser. Or Satan, it means adversary. Jesus called him the ruler of this world. Paul called him the God of this age. John said, we know that we're of God, but the whole world lies in the power of this evil one. Ephesians said he is the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. Which sounds like a bad band name, but it's talking about us. What's his work? Verse 8 said, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Sin means there was a mark we were supposed to hit, and we did not hit it. There was something we were meant to be, and we are not it. He said earlier in verse 4, everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. That doesn't mean that God had a list of rules and is checking it. Did you use a bad word? You're off the list, right? Did you use poke in northern England? You're fine. Use it in D.C.? You're on the list. No, God has laws, he has a structure by which he's allowed creation to flourish, right? Uh, you see it in physical laws about the universe, that, that the book of Proverbs says that God laid the foundations of the earth by wisdom, and it says of wisdom, all her ways are peace. That's the Hebrew word shalom. It doesn't just mean the absence of conflict, it means the presence of flourishing. It means that God created the world to work in a certain way, and when it does, everyone flourishes, everyone wins, so our planet spins around the sun and spins on its axis, giving us days and nights and seasons and years, puts us to bed and wakes us up. There's a rhythm to it that makes sense, that rain falls, waters the crops that feed us who till the soil. There's a rhythm to natural laws, and as the world abides by them, all flourish, and it spreads to relationships. Men are supposed to love women. Husbands are meant to cherish their wives. 
Wives are meant to love and cherish and respect their husbands. Parents are meant to care for their children, see the gifts God put in them, and help nourish those gifts so that child can flourish. We're all meant to use the gifts God gave us for the benefit of society. God created the world in such a way that when we walk according to his law, everyone flourishes, everyone wins. And it says the devil came to disrupt all that. And he's been doing it from the beginning. That back in Genesis, God convinced our first parents of a lie. To really enjoy life, you have to run from the author of life. And we're going to be talking this week about renewing our mind. But in that moment, our first parents had said, they neither glorified God nor gave thanks. And it says their foolish mind or hearts went dark. They became futile in their thinking. That they believed the lie that to really enjoy life, I have to sever from the author of life. And when they did that, the world broke. That when God returned to the garden, do you remember, he looked at Adam and said, the ground is cursed because of you. The world won't work right anymore. He said, the relationships between men and women will be complicated now. The childbirth, will every child that comes into the world will come screaming in pain so that there's a declaration, there's something wrong with us. The world will not work right anymore. And we see this with every horrible violence that's played out in the news and every weirdly insecure thing we'll say at a party to get attention. It all stems from this flood. That when we broke faith with our maker, we broke faith with each other, and everything broke. And yet, what did God do in that moment? When Adam and Eve still had the, the stain of their sin on them, what did God say? Did he walk to them and say, hey, you better clean this up. I'm going to leave for about a couple millennia. When I get back, I better see some shalom in here. Is that what he does? No. He looks at the serpent and he says, I'm going to put enmity, that means hatred, between you and this woman, between your seed and hers. And then he does something very interesting. He uses a singular, singular male pronoun to refer to the seed of a woman, which is a little weird thing to say because women don't have seed. I don't have time to explain all that. You can ask uh, one of the Pauls later. <laughs> but a peculiar boy, the seed of a woman, he will crush your head while you bruise his heel. And God says, I'm sending a hero. I'm sending a boy, and he's going to crush the one who deceived us. God's solution for your sin from the very beginning was a savior. We need rescue. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said it. If only there were evil people somewhere committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to sequester them and eliminate them. But the line that cuts good and evil goes through the heart of every man. We need a rescuer. And if someone doesn't come for us, we will not be free. So I remember for me, when I was a little kid, uh, my grandma uh, had a pool in her backyard uh, that years ago had been emptied of water, emptied of pool water uh, that you swim in. But over the years, it had filled with some rainwater and uh, trees and sticks and, and uh, grass. And there was all kind of frogs in there and snakes. And when you're a little kid, uh, it's frogs and snakes and all things evil, right? So... What would a four-year-old boy from Texas do if he's got a grandma with a pool of evil in the backyard? You play on the edge of it, right? And so I would show up in the backyard and be like, it's so evil, I can't stand it. And on I would go. And I remember one day I was there with my brother and uh, we were playing along the edge and I slipped and I fell in. And I remember as soon as I did, the thought that struck my mind is, I got to get out of here. And so I remember I ran as hard as my little four-year-old legs could leap, and then I got to the shallow end, and I made a jump for the edge. 
And I didn't get close. Like, I don't know who dug out that pool, but he was motivated. And in that moment, I realized I can't get out by my own power. And I looked up at my brother, who's just a year older than me at five, and I was like, huh? He's like, huh? I'm like, huh? Because I realized he can't help me either. So I did the only thing that was available to a child my age at the time. I started to cry. And I remember as I cried, I looked up at the fence. And between the slats of the fence, I saw a, a, a young man, maybe high school, college age, across the fence. And I saw him right as he heard my cries. And I watched him drop whatever gardening tool he had. And he began to run. And I remember he got to that fence and he just leapt it all in one move. And I was like, yeah, okay, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. I'm sorry. <laughs> and he dove into that pool with me. And he pulled me out. And I remember as we stood on that edge, me covered with the muck of my own mistakes, but looking into the face of my rescuer who dove in with me, he said, are you okay, son? And I was speechless in front of the face of my hero. Now, let me tell you something. We're going to talk about techniques and tactics to work through some of the anxieties and depressions and addictions we have. But before we do that, we need to look into the face of a king because God's solution to your sin and mine is not a technique. It's a hero. It's a savior. He said, our son is coming to crush the one who deceived us. How did he do it? It says that he did it by his appearing. That Jesus' birth was a landed invasion. Did you ever notice when Jesus arrived on the scene? What happened after his time uh, growing up? He stepped forth and he said, here I am. Got baptized. The dove descended. God said, that's my boy. And after that declaration, what happened? Immediately he went to the desert and the devil began to tempt him. Trying to derail him from his mission. The same thing he did with our first parents. And yet as he continues to tempt Jesus, Jesus is fending him off with Deuteronomy quotes. Finally, in desperation, the devil says, I will give you everything, everything. Just stop doing what you're here to do. And do you remember Jesus' response? He said, sorry. That's a rough translation. It's like the message version. But read it. It's there. And it says he walked out in the power of the Holy Spirit. He walked into the synagogue, grabbed the scroll, scroll, turned right to Isaiah, and read the passage, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and to proclaim release to the captives. We know that God sent him. We know that he preached. We know that he loved the poor. But I love that he includes, and I'm here to set captives free. And then he ended by saying, this is being fulfilled right now. And he marched out of that synagogue to do damage against the kingdom of darkness. You saw demons scream in his presence. Even in religious gatherings, this would happen. Terrified and shaking before the power of this man. Uh, one of my personal favorite moments in Jesus' ministry, he was asked to explain, why are you here? And he told this story. He said, imagine a strong man covered in armor and he's got all his gear. He said, now imagine a stronger man beating him up, stripping his weapons, and stealing his things. That's me. You ever tried that in your evangelism classes? Try it with a friend next time. What does Jesus mean to you? He's like a big guy who beats a dude up and steals his belongings. That's, that's my Jesus. Hallelujah. He takes away from him all his armor on which he relied and distributes his plunder. Why did the demons scream in his presence? Because the stronger one is here. And can I just say something, New Horizon? I know some of you are here and 
every worship song you sang at the top of your lungs because you're so excited to worship. You're so excited to be back together. You're so excited to celebrate Jesus. You've been waiting in anticipation to sing with the saints, but others of you maybe barely sang a word because the songs of freedom ring hollow about your own life. Because you can sing in here, but in the quiet places, in the dark places, addiction is, is wrecking you. You've gone to some places to find relief that are now stealing life from you. Depression has got you so beat up over these last few years, or for many of you, addictions have taken their place, and it's led you to a place that you go, I am powerless to get out. And can I just say something? We'll unpack more in the days ahead, but can I just say tonight something encouraging? If you feel like something in your life is too strong for you, my hope and encouragement for you tonight is the stronger one is here. You need not be captive anymore because the stronger one is here. One of my personal favorite moments is when he came up to the man who had a legion of demons in him. Do you remember? And the demons responded, are you here to torment us before the appointed time? It's like they knew a whipping was coming. They just thought he was early. They were like, oh man, so much to do. The centerpiece of his ministry, he ascends that mountain, tells his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to reject me. I'm going to die. And Peter sidebars him and says, hey, buck up, Messiah. Nobody's going to die on my watch and, and starts to give Jesus a little pump-up talk. And so Jesus has to give him what we call a front-end alignment. That's not really how this works, Peter. You don't rebuke the Messiah. But do you remember Jesus looks past Peter at the root of that statement? And he says, get behind me, Satan. Satan's trying to keep him from that cross. He says, no, I must go. So Luke tells us he set his face like stone towards Jerusalem. And he walked into that city, and on the night he was betrayed, he said in John 12, now is the judgment of the world, and the ruler of this world will be cast out. He said later that night, the ruler of this world is judged. And Jesus went to that cross. He destroyed the works of the devil, not by perpetrating violence, but by taking violence upon himself. Hebrews says it this way, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He who knew no sin became sin on that cross, took all our sin, all our shame, all our failure, all that would threaten to wreck us, destroy us, unravel us. He said, let me take it. And it killed him and he buried it. But then the ground began to shake and that stone was rolled away and his perfect love could not be overcome. Now death, where is your sting? Our resurrected king has rendered you defeated. The cross was a place of triumph over the enemy. Colossians 2 says, you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but he made you alive, having forgiven all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. He took all our sin, all our shame, all our failure. I know many of you are believers. You're like, of course I know this, but it's helpful to think about mine. That he took mine, the thing that shames me in the dark, he took it upon himself and said, I'm taking that from you, I'm putting it on me, and I am burying it. The power the devil has over us is as an accuser that he can take legitimate wrong we've done and torment us with the guilt. And yet what it says here is that Jesus Christ has taken the consequences of our failures and he's taken it out of the way. He has slapped the sword out of the enemy's hand. 
And Colossians said he triumphed over him on the cross. The early readers would know what that word meant, triumph. It was a technical word at the time. A triumph was, um, was an event, sort of like a parade. That back then when you were part of a town and, and maybe a neighboring village was attacking you, it was a terrifying thing. If they overcame us, uh, they would kill all the men and, and carry the women and children off in slavery. It's, it was a scary thing. And so if your king rode out to battle, you were praying for your king. And if a messenger came back and said, your king was victorious, you didn't say, oh, well, tell him congratulations. You got excited because you knew not only was he victorious, he's coming back for the celebration. So you got the town ready. You washed all the buildings. You washed all the children. If the road was crooked, you made it straight. If there were little valleys in it, you filled them up. If there were high places, you made them low. You prepared the main road for your king. And on the day of the triumph, the king wasn't going to ride in with the gore of battle. He got all ready in white robes. And then he would ride into the city ride in sometimes on a white horse or on a chariot pulled by a horse and you would see your king in his glory. And then behind him would often be the enemy king, sometimes tied to the chariot and he'd be stripped naked. And that was to make fun of him because naked people out in the streets look, look crazy. And the idea was this person who scared you so much, you need not be afraid of anymore. Your king is stronger than him. And then there was one other group in the triumph. It was the people the king had rescued. And they would wear white linen, bright and clean. And they would sing, swing censures of incense. Because scent is the sense most tied to memory. And so they would swing it so the, the whole town and them most of all would be covered with the scent and the aroma of their king's victory. 2 Corinthians 2.14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. See, there's another way Jesus destroys the work of the devil. He did it by his appearing in that space and time moment in history and on the cross, and he did it in the moment of appearing in you when he says no longer, no longer does the enemy hold you no longer does your sin condemn you. No longer does your past determine your future. No longer does shame need to bury you. I came to get you. I fought for you. I bled for you. I beat death for you. I rose for you. I am in triumph and I'm bringing you with me. And it's to my glory that I rescue you. You participate in his victory over the devil the moment you say yes to his rescue. I'm going with him. I'm going with the hero. I'm going with the king who's manifest the aroma of his triumph in me. Colossians 1 says he delivered us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So before we shift our behavior, we have to shift our belief. Am I really his? Before there's a shift in activity, we need a shift of identity. I belong to the king. And once I ride with him, the way I move, the way I live begins to change. And we'll talk about that in the days ahead. But he says it happens when he breaks sin in me. And there's imagery in this passage of the new birth. He says no one born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. He cannot sin because he's born of God. He says, hey, I, you're born again. Is imagery the Bible uses that the seed of God is in you and you look like your dad. Kids look like their parents. And he says, hey, if you've been born of God, you are wound of his kids. He renovates you from the inside out. And we don't revel in what our God and Father came to destroy. How does he destroy the works of the devil? 
when he knocks the condemnation of sin out of the devil's hands and he knocks the desire for sin out of us. I don't want to revel in what my king came to destroy. Now, we got to solve something real quick here at the end before we're done, and it's this. Some of you heard that passage as we read it. No one born of God practices sin. He cannot sin because he's been born of God. And some of you might be thinking, does that preach sinless perfection? Do you have to be sinless in order to be saved? Because Ben, uh, I might have sinned today. Can't say for sure. I might have sinned on the way here, to be honest. It was the only way I could get the kids in the car, all right? I just... Is this teaching sinless perfection? No. And why not? Well, let me give you two reasons. One is the verb is in the present tense, which means continuous active uh, activity. That means no one who's born of God practices sin, continues in sin, marches unrepentantly, indulgently, persistently, and what God came to destroy. We don't revel in what our king bled out for. So are you perfect? No. But do you, do you revel in what he came to destroy? The people who love him and know what it is to be loved by him? I don't want to celebrate what he came to set me free from. If I go to rehab and they get me clean, I don't go, thanks for making me clean so I can fill my body full of drugs again. No. Setting you clean was to set you free to live a new life. I don't want to revel in what he came to destroy. But you don't need to know Greek verb tenses to know that. You could just read 1 John. John chapter 1 says, if, if you say you're without sin, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. So if you say that you're without sin, that's a sin. So you're sinning, sinner. So if you say, I'm sinless, that's sinning. So we don't live a sinless life. And yet, when we run with the king, we begin to move away from the things that took life from us and towards things that build life in us, away from ways of thinking and ways of living that isolated us from intimacy with God. And we move towards ways of thinking and ways of living that promote the intimacy with God that Christ purchased. And our assurance is not in perfection, but in progress. It's not in perfection, but in progress. Two stories that I've done. Number one is my yard. Uh, when Donna and I got married, uh, we bought a house for the first time. And the house had been uh, neglected by the previous owner, seen most acutely in the state of the yard. There was no grass, not a blade. Think about the countryside here and imagine the opposite. That was our yard. <laughs> Nothing green except for weeds, hundreds of weeds. Millions of weeds, maybe. And there were little carpeted weeds. There were big, robust weeds, taller than my head. They were angry. Now, question. How did the neighbors know a new resident had moved in? Because I took a weed eater. And I went after those weeds. I started mowing them down. I felt like a little man in a big salad. Just wet greenness flying everywhere. Ah! And we shoveled that out and we dug them up and we put fertilizer down and we nurtured the soil. And over time, there were less weeds and there was more grass. Now, a couple months later, were all the weeds gone? <laughs> no. And was there a lot of grass? No. But there was some like, hey, I see a little bit of grass there, right? So if you were new to the neighborhood and were just driving by in a moment, you might go, well, clearly no one lives there. But you'd be wrong because you hadn't seen the progress over time. Now, why do I say that? Because some of you uh, might be the kind of people, we used to call them fruit inspectors, looking for spiritual fruit in people. Do I see enough kindness in you? Right? 
Some of you may have a bit of that in you. Maybe look at someone's life in a moment and say, man, do I see old habits, weeds growing in your soul? Do I see new affections being stirred up by God? If I don't, well, maybe you're not really saved. But you be careful who wants to judge the soul of another as to whether or not the new resident of the Holy Spirit has moved in. On the night Jesus was betrayed, two men went running off into the dark. Judas who betrayed him and Peter who said, I don't know that man and cussed like a sailor to show that. And if you and I were standing there and I said, quick, which one's a real believer? You'd say, uh, neither. And you'd be wrong. You would cancel a Peter along with a Judas because you hadn't seen the progress over time. Judas had said the devil was in him. Peter denied Christ and he went away and cried. And then Jesus showed up on the beach and wooed his son back because that's what God does. And some of us, I just wonder if there's some Peters on the beach here tonight that you know you love him, but you have wandered down many empty roads. He's not here to condemn you. He's here to set you free. God sent you a hero. You trust him. He delights in calling his children out of the darkness into his kingdom. Less weeds, more grass over time. Last illustration. Uh, I'm thinking of, uh, of war. Uh, for me, I always think of that opening scene in Saving Private Ryan. I don't know if you saw that movie. It's about World War II and on the beaches of Normandy. There's that terrible scene as, as U.S. troops are crossing that beach under tremendous fire. And as I look at that scene, there's two types of soldiers on the beach that day. One type looks serene, even peaceful. The other looks agitated, anxious. One looks calm, undisturbed. The other looks frightened, and uncertain. What's the difference? The calm one is dead. Dead people don't jump when a bomb goes off. They don't duck when they hear a shot fired because they're dead. It's the alive who are most aware of the struggle. Now, why do I say that? Because I meet so many people that struggle with their sin. The dark broken places you'll go online, the sad things you'll put into your body for comfort, the dark thoughts that you're scared to share with anyone because you wonder what they'll say. I hear so many people that struggle with their sin, and as they struggle with their sin, maybe the thought creeps in, well, maybe I don't really belong to God because I struggle this much. Maybe I'm not really saved. Maybe he hasn't really changed me. Maybe I'm not really his because I struggle so much. And I just want to close by telling you, for some of you, the struggle is real. There are things we need to do to struggle, but let me encourage you tonight. For some of you, your struggle is your greatest sign that you're alive because the dead don't struggle. Sin doesn't shake them. It's your dislike of the sin in you that's one of the greatest evidences you've been made alive. You've been born of God. Now the question is, how do I struggle well? And that's tomorrow. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that you love us and you love us enough to be honest with us that there's no earning the smile of God. It's not for sale and we don't have the money. But what delights you is when we're honest about our sin. And as we confess, you are faithful to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of unrighteousness. Lord, for some of us, our struggles are failures, 
They disappoint us so much that they feel big, they feel strong, they feel overwhelming, they feel unconquerable. But I just pray for a break in the clouds tonight that we might start to believe they are too big for me, they are unconquerable for me, but they're not unconquerable for my king. That he lived the perfect life I could not. He died the death I deserved, and I will not disrespect his cross by suggesting that my sin is too strong for his sacrifice. No, the stronger one is here. No darkness can block out his sun. No enemy can withhold or match his power. And I'm going with him. I'm belonging to him. And friends, I know some of you in here, maybe you just thought religion was be a good person. And tonight's for you because I'm just letting you know no true religion starts with acknowledging I'm not a good person. But God sent a hero. And if Jesus is forgiving, forgive me. If Jesus is cleansing, cleanse me. If he's adopting, adopt me. And I want to challenge you, friend, tonight to say yes to the hero. God's solution for you and for me is a savior. Say yes to him. Let him change you from the inside out. And then for those of us who know him, before we move on to technique, let's just marvel at the king. Let's ask God to let us see the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what we need. We need the things of earth to grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. So maybe talk to him for a moment, New Horizon, before we walk out. Just tell him, Lord, you know I'm struggling with this. You know I'm wrestling here. You know what it's been like here. Just tell him. He knows, but it helps to hear the voice of his kids. And maybe just whisper to him if you're willing, but I believe you're stronger than my sin. I believe you're more powerful than my shame. I believe there is hope today because God sent a hero. And ask him for the grace to set your eyes on him this week. Let's not just go through the motions at New Horizons. Let's see a new horizon as we fix our eyes on the sunrise. And let's worship him together thank you for listening to this talk if you would like to know more about new horizon please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk